my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today's interview is with Christopher Adams, an American teacher who is the department chair of literature at an Atlanta, Georgia-based high school. With over 20 years of educational experience, Christopher will share his professional and personal experiences as a Black gay professional. Hey, Chris, welcome. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. You know, it's been a difficult time for all teachers. We thought we got through a lot of the hard with the experience of COVID and being virtual, but then we got back to the schoolhouse and it was like, oh, it's still hard and <laughs> maybe in some ways even harder. So. so was the entire fall semester in person? It was, it was. We were all in person. You know, every school district sort of made different decisions, mm -hmm. but we basically have a separate kind of setup if families want to stay virtual. So there are some students, uh, especially because, you know, the younger students only recently were able to get vaccines. From what I understand, a few thousand students in my district that decided they would just stay virtual. I think most of the secondary kids, especially high school kids, since they had the option of getting vaccinated, I think most of them have returned. So our school numbers are almost exactly the same as pre-COVID at this point. So it's just under 2,200 students on a campus. For the entire high school? Yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Now, was it a requirement to be vaccinated for the students? And no, not a requirement. It's been suggested. I think they've had a couple of days when they've had people on site to do testing and to give out vaccines. I think that was mainly though for employees of our school and some of our feeder schools that those uh, vaccinations were offered. It's interesting because I have a friend here, her son, this is his second year, sophomore year, and I was talking to him during Christmas and he was saying that he feels like a freshman because his freshman year he was online and it was something I hadn't thought about that a lot of these kids, you know, even though it's their second year, it's a new experience. That's definitely part of what's made our first semester back really difficult because there's a significant amount of maturation that happens for kids as they go through middle school. That's just a norm that's always talked about by educators. So when you have students that now they basically missed a year of socializing and maturing, we had to recognize, oh, we have these ninth graders, but they're actually our seventh graders in the way they're acting. Mm -hmm. I saw an interview with, her name is Sunny. She's one of the hosts, I think, on Good Morning America. The View. I think she started high school at 12. Yes, yes. The interview at Jamela, I'll uh, put the link in the description, but Sunny said that when asked if she thought that was a good idea, she said, looking back, no, because of, like you said, the maturation process that she wasn't a part of because she was so young. It's not just about the intellectual capacity. We've had this problem at my school where, you know, there were students that wouldn't go to class when the bell would ring. It was like those younger students, they didn't realize even like, what the bells mean, like some of my performing middle schools, they make them walk in line to class. You know, you're still walking in step with all of your peers. And high school is completely different. You don't go in lockstep with anyone. They haven't gotten the thing until quite <laughs> recently that it's on you to go to class when that bell rings. Oh, it's definitely something the average person like me, I don't think about. <laughs> 
just to kind of center us where we're at, how was your holiday? How was your Christmas? I'm lucky. I have a family that's, uh, for the most part, been doing all the preventative steps with COVID and all the different variants. So my parents are alive. They're both in their 80s and they're both in relative good health. They've gotten both of their initial shots. They've got both gotten their booster. I've gotten my two shots and my booster. My niece who I raised is here. Our Christmas dinner was only like six, I think, or seven of us spread out in my mom's house. Before COVID, the thing we've been doing the last few years was going to like kind of a vacation rental for Christmas because we lost so many family members who were like kind of our big Christmas people. My sister was a big Christmas person. One of my aunts, one of my mother's sisters, she was like the big one that would have a big party and love to decorate, like could not stop buying Christmas tchotchkes and stuff. These people who were the Christmas, you know, kind of divas had passed on. It was like, well, I don't feel like that's my thing. <laughs> my mom was like, I'm fast with caring about that. And that was never my thing either. And I sort of threw the idea out to her. I was like, I feel like we should just, you know, try to create a new memory somewhere else rather than trying to recreate or try to recapture poorly what they took such joy in doing. I hadn't thought of that. Like when those of our loved ones are not here with us physically keeping traditions alive, or like you said, finding a way to create new ones. My sister did this thing of hosting a Christmas party. She initially started this as a way to get together with all of her cousins and then including like, you know, our parents and their generations. This grew to be this big thing. My aunt was the same way where she had all of her husband's relatives, all of her relatives, family, friends, people she knew from college. And it was amazing because she had this tiny little house. I guess it have every surface decorated and People are sitting and eating and everywhere there was a place to eat and people eating in shifts, but she loved it. You know, it was mm -hmm. something that she took a lot of joy in doing. People said, told me like, oh, you need to pick that up. It's like, uh, no, I am not picking that up. That's what people felt called to do. Mm -hmm. I don't really revel in big groups. I like, you know, small conversations. I like to have a one-to-one -one chat with a friend. I like to sit with like three or four people at a dinner. I don't need a dinner of 40 people. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely those memories fueling these new, hopefully, traditions. Now, are you originally from Atlanta? Yeah, I was born and raised here. My parents went to Morris Brown College. They met here, fell in love here, started a family. Um, my mom's from South Georgia, from a farming community, and my dad's from Columbus, which is right outside the military base of Fort Benning, Georgia. And after they finished college, they decided just to settle here and became educators for the Atlanta public school system something I thought I would never want to do because I thought their jobs were just so boring. I had a lot of judgment about what I thought teachers did. Hopefully, most of us have this experience where you have a few that maybe really stood out from the pack and really seemed like they were awesome. I mean, I hope everyone has at least one or two of those experiences in their K-12 career. I never thought I would come back to Georgia necessarily because I you know, lived in LA for a long time. I lived in New York for a long time, an even longer time in New York. Yeah, because when I met you back when we worked for the same company, you had just come to L.A. Were you continuing to be an actor there? I had kind of given up the idea of pursuing being a performer. I think I was 33 when I got to New York. And I'd gone through about five or six years in New York of really working as hard as I could to make strides in becoming a stage performer. And I did a lot of work for no money. <laughs> I did one bus and truck tour for Shakespeare that, you know, I learned a lot on, but I, again, didn't make much money from that. And I just felt exhausted by the process. I didn't feel like it was going anywhere fast. And I started looking around to see other people that I knew that were theater actors that were just struggling so much. And so I just started looking around for what else was calling to me to do. 
And I had a couple of friends that had moved to LA before me. And one of them was working in production for Disney feature animation. And they called me on a joint call actually and said, you think that you could maybe work in production or do something out here? Like you're so smart and think, you know, there's something else you could be doing here. They would love to have somebody like you, I think, working at a company here. So why don't you take a chance and come out here? And I was like, done. I was teaching at that point, but not for a school. I was working for a little company that was, I don't know what you call it. It was a computer education company and they taught parents kids and even we went to schools as well to teach teachers how to use technology and this was like really the boom of technology was really happening in the late 90s I felt like i was good at what i was doing but again making no money and i knew that like this is not something that's going to be a career i've always loved literature and writing so i kept thinking okay what things can i do that would be a full-time way to use these skills with like working in theater or working in writing working in production or something like that so when my friend said, maybe you should try here in LA and get a production, I was like, yes, I'll try it. And I, know I just did not find I really liked the people <laughs> in production that was meeting in LA. I think it's a very specific kind of mindset of people that enjoy that experience and can thrive in it. And I was like, I don't think that's me. So that's kind of the story of how I ended up in LA. I really just meditated a lot. Again, I was always trying to figure out, okay, these tools I have, whatever acumen I have with writing, with looking at literature, with communicating things to people, it's like, I'm not sure how to use it. I think I have these tools. I didn't know how to package them and use them. I did some volunteering at the Gay and Lesbian Center in LA, just as a way to give back when I got to LA. And I was teaching computer software classes and how to help people make a resume, how to make their initial web pages, how to go online. And people were just so receptive and so thankful for all of that. So then when I was doing all this kind of meditating, I was going on hikes up in the, the mountains or the hills above Griffith Park, up there where the observatory is in LA, beautiful spot that I miss so much. But I just was like, what am I supposed to be doing with these talents, these gifts, this ability? I was like, I know I'm not supposed to just be working in an office. You know, I know I'm not here just to fix up someone's spreadsheets or their Word documents or whatever. There's something else I'm supposed to be doing. And I felt like the clouds parted just say, you're supposed to be teaching. And I was like, teaching? My mom's mom was a teacher. My mom's a teacher. I'm about to come all the way across the country to have this kind of revelation. You should be teaching. I was like, okay, that's very strange that I had to go that far away from where I came from to have this idea that that's what maybe these talents and gifts should be used for, you know? We worked in the same department. I don't know if we had talked about it, but I think I do remember you saying that there wasn't something that appealed to you because you grew up in a home of educators, but I didn't know. I don't think at that time, the backstory or all of it. I think I told my mom pretty quickly after I made the decision and she was like, well, of course, you've always been a teacher. I always knew you were a teacher. And she started like kind of showing me just what I used to do of like doing read alouds for my cousins, even from my comic book collection or whatever. But I guess I always had that kind of little organizational thing of like how a teacher would you know, manage a class or whatever. I would backtrack a little bit. You mentioned bus and truck tour, which I haven't heard that expression, but could you explain that a little in connection to theater? Bus and truck is fancier than what my tour was. <laughs> <laughs> usually with the bus and truck, it usually is what they do for a lot of the big musicals. So like if you have a musical like Wicked or uh, Cats, once they have done their Broadway seasons, they will then launch a national tour or they'll do a European tour and they'll do a certain number of nights in every city. So that means that it might include sound equipment, it might include lights, definitely include all their sets and costumes. Usually with those big ones, the sound and light stuff is like something that they can have contracted so that once they arrive at the theater, that's all set up for them. 
So they just have to come with their costumes, their lighting, and anything that has to be hung from the rigging. And then the actors are on a bus. They'll stay at different hotels along the routes. With mine, it was not quite to that level because <laughs> we were very small theater companies. It was called National Shakespeare Company. I don't think it still exists now. I remember when I went to the audition, the woman who was the head of the company says, I see on your resume, you do a lot of children's theater. Is that right? I said, yeah, a lot of the children's theater jobs I got, they would pay. So she said, yeah, I can tell that you're doing a lot of children's theater. Maybe you should do a little less of that. Now, what did she mean by that? You know, if you imagine like someone that's doing something like Sesame Street, you know, famously back in the day, Morgan Freeman and Rita Moreno, both yeah. Academy Award winning actors, they did a electric company for years in the early 70s when their careers were not doing so well. There's a way that you have to perform in a bigness and a way of like indicating with gestures that you do when you're doing material for kids that doesn't necessarily work when you're doing more adult kind of acting. So I really took that note because a lot of times when you go to auditions as an actor, they'll just say thank you. Mm -hmm. They may call you back, you know, after that, thank you. Or they may say, mean, thank you, like, you know, GTFO. <laughs> you don't know what that <laughs> yeah. thank you actually means, but you just know that time right now is over and you may hear something back. You may not hear anything back, but for someone to actually give you feedback is very rare in an audition setting. And even at the time, I realized that was really a gift. I got opportunities to do acting. So I did an um, off-off-Broadway show that was Julius Caesar set in Harlem. Or it's going to know it's called Julius Caesar set in Africa. So we all wore African garb. And I was like one of the slaves to Julius Caesar and wearing a loincloth. Those shows were helping me grow as an actor in a way that doing all that cartoony kind of acting was not. And so when I went back later and auditioned for that company again, I had really grown as an actor. And I think they could see it. So not only did I get cast, but I actually got cast in one of the leading roles. Because that year I got cast to play Iago in Othello. For those true bus and truck companies, they go with people that are techs who are going to just carry all the equipment. So you as the actor, all you have to do is show up and do a great job. We had to be our own tech crew. We traveled very light. We had a stage manager, and she was the only one that was not an actor. So it was a great experience in a lot of ways, but you know, it was exhausting in some ways too. You mentioned the performance of Julius Caesar in Harlem. How was it as a Black actor pounding the pavement in New York? I mean, I came to New York in 89. And it was a very odd time to be uh, an African-American actor. You know, I'd been trained in theater at the University of Georgia and done some shows there. I'd gone to do a summer job for two summers at the uh, Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, which was a great experience because one thing I realized from that job was that the biggest thing that most people that want to be actors the thing they need the most is stage time. You can imagine someone who wants to be a singer and, and to do kind of stadium shows like a Beyonce. Well, Beyonce has started performing since she was like nine. And, you know, she had almost 10 years of performing and struggling before she even had a hit song with Destiny's Child. So how do you think you're going to get to, you know, being the equal of somebody who's been performing and working on their craft that long? So I just learned all these different skills and just got a chance to not just learn it like you do in school, but actually use it. So I did that summer of 87, summer of 88. And so I really felt like a veteran actor in some ways. I felt so strong and so powerful. But anyway, I got to New York in 89. And it was just a very odd time because there was an economic downturn of those Reagan-Bush years. A lot of nonprofit funding just started drying up. 
So I had studied, you know, when I was in college, the Negro Ensemble Theater and all the great actors. Like if you see the old movie of Roots, like so many of those great black actors that were in Roots and so many of the things that those of us of a certain generation remember, they all came from Negro Ensemble Theater they actually shuttered their doors within the first like month or so <laughs> that I was there because funding just started drying up for a lot of nonprofit stuff. Okay. There was not one black show on Broadway. And the things that I've started seeing that were black shows, they were all singing and dancing shows. It would be like musical reviews. I see. That had no acting in it at all. And I can sing a bit and I can move a bit. But if you ever go and you see a Broadway show and you see the caliber of singing and dancing, the work they have put in to make their artistry be on a certain kind of level. It's like saying you can ski a bit and thinking you can go to the Olympics versus one of these people that's been practicing skiing since they were small children. You know, I wanted to be like a Sydney Partier, you know, acting on stage, a Lou Gossett acting on stage. <laughs> there was no stage plays being done that were all black stage plays. The uh, Cosby show at the time, it was still filming in a different world filming there in New York. Once or twice I went on casting calls for those, but it was like, cattle call and the people that often got picked to be on those shows were people that came from the hip-hop world or modeling world or the music world was that new during that time yeah especially hiring people from the music and hip-hop world or there were stand-up comedians like i saw courtney b vance do six degrees of separation and he got all kinds of awards and nominations for his performances that's what really exploded his career when he did that on broadway now, when they made the movie of it, they kept Stalker Channing, who did the stage version of it, and they replaced Courtney B. Vance, who was Yale-trained, and they replaced him with Will Smith. I don't even know if he started The Fresh Prince yet. He was a rapper. It was exhausting for me, and I wanted to work on my writing. So writing really started then taking my focus for those last few years of my 20s and into my 30s. And I think that's when I met you. I was really focused on you know, still kind of continue with writing or whatever, but still frustrated with what I was doing to make money. I mean, we made an okay living at the firm we were working at. So I wasn't living in poverty and I had good health insurance and all that. And I wasn't satisfied by the work and I didn't know still, like, what do I do with these talents and gifts? Though I feel like I have all this ability to do something, but what is the something? I will definitely get back to uh, your career as an educator, but just uh, one last question connected to performing. The time that you were around it in L.A., were you able to see the differences between L.A. and New York? When I got to L.A., I was really looking at that idea of, did I want to go into production work? I had always been kind of clear that you had to have a certain kind of look for a lot of the work in L.A., unless you really had a purely character look. You don't think you're ugly or something. I'm not troubled by that. But at the same time, you can go into a room, you can see, wow, that guy is dropping in gorgeous. I would choose him. So it's hard to imagine what it was like back then. But when it was in the 90s, you know, you had to be extremely good looking. Your body had to look a certain type. If you were even a little bit chunky, like you did not get through to the next thing. You just really had to be as close to perfect. No matter what type you were, if you were black, if you're white, if you're Latino, you had to be as close to perfect and well-groomed and everything as possible. And I definitely saw that in L.A. Mm -hmm. It was all about introductions. Like everyone seemed like very hungry to just meet somebody that would open a door for them. Yeah. I was telling someone about this not that long ago, about this experience when I was in L.A., when I would go to a party with my friend Greg. He would introduce me to someone. They wanted to talk to Greg because, again, he's working feature animation. He had a, you know kind of an executive position. 
but they would say, okay, well, who are you and what do you do? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm trying to get in production. I'm working, you know, in this office, whatever. They're like, uh-huh. And people would just turn and walk away from me. <laughs> they would stop sometimes mid-sentence. I would have to become a different person to be okay with people behaving like that all the time around me. My experience, the brief moment that I was attempting to be an actor in L.A., because we met at an investment banking firm. That's what we were working at. And I felt that when I started working there, that was good training for uh, Hollywood because my perception of it was that the business was up front. <laughs> so to talk about your career as a teacher, how was it transferring just psychologically, emotionally from doing what you had been doing creatively, professionally, and then also like working for in offices to going to teaching? I still take a lot of my former you know, experiences into what I do in the classroom. The creativity that I got used to doing and creating a collaborative environment, I definitely take that from the time I was in theater. And I've tried to create great collaborative situations for students to learn through collaboration. Certainly like all the ways of learning how to organize electronic files and things like that and to create my own design of worksheets was something I definitely took out of like the production work we did at the financial firm to be able to create documents, to create spreadsheets. It's funny sometimes when I have to collaborate with other educators and somebody will say, oh, let's make a list of this or something like this or a task breakdown or something. You know, we'll have like, you know, let's say an electronic display board where you, everyone in the room can see what you're typing in your screen. But sometimes I'll just have to say, okay, stop. Can you just get up? Because what they're doing is like, they just don't know, you know, because I mean, you're laughing because you remember just the way that we were forced to produce yeah. and the pressure on us to produce documents with sometimes people standing over our shoulders, mm -hmm. breathing Literally. on our necks to see someone like struggling to find like a pull down from a spreadsheet or how do I change this color? It's like, okay, just move. By the time I explained it, I could have done the whole sheet yeah. by the time you figure out how to do that. So after that year of virtual learning, even those of us who are pretty good with technology had to think of new tools. How do we communicate with them? How do we use things? How do we use like this Google suite of tools to do different lessons and do different activities? So just a lot of that stuff, you know, really has helped me as I become a teacher. You know, sometimes just that thing of how do you work with people that are not easy to work with? You know, you have very unpleasant people that you somehow have to, have to work together with very closely. Definitely when we were working in that investment firm, we had people that they didn't seem to like us or respect us necessarily but you might be working a 12 hour day and those are the bulk of the people you're going to see that whole day. Right. And so that's made it, I think a little bit easier. Just keep it professional. Not expect that we're going to end up being best buddies. You started off in junior high, teaching junior high school students. Was that intentional? Was that your focus or what you wanted to do from the beginning as a teacher? No, my focus had always had been high school ed. My inspiration was really my favorite teacher from high school. Her name was Jay Guy. She just passed away pretty recently. Her daughter has got to be a pretty famous Jasmine guy who was on a different world. Oh, she okay. preceded wow. me by a couple of years in my high school. I was in school with her younger sister. But anyway, their mom, Mrs. Guy, was just this incredible educator. She's incredibly smart. Showed you every day that she cared intimately for every student. You know, I was in her gifted class. You know, she had other classes that were not gifted. And I saw that she related the same way to those kids. There's some teachers, some of them have a fondness for teaching one kind of student versus another. And there are a few teachers, they like teaching whoever's in front of them. And Ms. Guy was that kind of teacher. So she was just a really special teacher. And I was like, I want to be the kind of teacher that can grow students like that, that can connect to students like that. 
what do I see in this academic realm for you? She really would try to see what your particular gifts and strengths were. I would always just go back and lean on what I learned from her. So I was like, I want to be that kind of teacher. So I always wanted to be a high school educator is that long answer to that question. Because I had left that investment firm. I was working for this little publishing company in LA. And they had an idea when I left and joined that company that they were going to be expanding and growing really quickly because they were involved in kind of the internet industry. And so I was kind of stuck and not knowing what to do. But I thought about Mrs. Guy and what she gave to us. So anyway, I made this decision to leave that job very spontaneously after doing this hike up there in Griffith Park, then transitioned out of that job and started working on my certifications I needed to apply to be a teacher because you had to take like this week-long class in LA. I don't know if they still do this, but at the time to learn all about what's required of you if you want to be a a substitute teacher or if you want to apply to be a full-time teacher. So I finished that class, did whatever test I needed to do. Back then, you had to go to the central office at LAUSD, Unified School District, and they had a book of these are the schools that have openings. You just had to take a piece of paper, write down, <laughs> these are the schools that have openings, these are the names of the principals, these are people to call. I started with high schools, but I wrote down middle schools as a backup. And the first call I got was from this middle school in South Central, and I went out there and I had a good meeting with the, the, uh, the principal, and by the time I got home, she was calling me up to offer me the job. So I never went on another interview. So that's how I ended up in middle school, because I just felt like I'm supposed to be teaching. So let me just start teaching. So in my naivete, I was thinking, well, I love middle school, so I'll just do that. Um, but I didn't really realize how special my middle school experience was and how special my school was. And it was like the wild, wild west, <laughs> you know, going to the middle school there in South Central. You know, you have gangs, you have you know, lots of violence. And it was like, oh, this is not what I experienced in middle school. Yeah. I think that was one thing that helped me was recognizing early on that I didn't know what I was doing and that I needed to figure it out and be a student of what to do, not assume anything. I needed to go in and really learn. But I say to middle schools, most of my career, I've only now been in high school these last four years. So since you've been back in Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, I came back here in Atlanta in 08 and I didn't transfer to this high school until uh, 2018. What was your reasoning for leaving LA to move back to your hometown? Well, you remember, I did not move back here originally. I was kind of unsettled about whether or not I wanted to go back to New York or if I wanted to come to Atlanta. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and I actually did like a vacation one of those years. I started teaching already and I hadn't been back to New York in a bit. And I went back to New York and stayed for, I think, two weeks. And then I made plans to stay in Atlanta one week. You know, my sister's passed on now, but when I came to Atlanta and she was sort of like showing me around, we were doing things, just sort of like out of the blue, just shows how much she knew me. She just said, yeah, I don't think the city is ready for you yet. This was in, uh, I guess, like 2002 or 2003. What does she mean by that? One, the Atlanta we grew up in was very segregated, very provincial. There's things I just don't care about. We have, I don't know if you know, like Jack and Jill is very big here, where it's all about trying to create a society kind of based on ball or cotillion society that rich Southern white folks had, where you'd have like kind of a coming out ceremony for black children into society, whatever that means, <laughs> you know? So that was still a very big part of what was going on when I left Atlanta. And so she was like, yeah, I don't think the city is really ready for, you know, the kind of person she knows I am, the kind of ways I expect to be in a city or whatever. So I did have an experience while I was in New York on that two-week vacation where I got back together with an ex. 
And we started this long distance relationship and really started talking about building a future and building a family together. So it was either 2002, 2003. All I did was then start continuing that long distance relationship and then make plans to finally uh, leave LA and then go join him in New York. The reason I left LA was one, it's like, I did feel like I was grounded in this new career. So I felt like I had found my purpose. I was working on my master's degree at that point and was almost done. But I was like, it is really hard to buy a house out there. Like if I want to get to that kind of middle-class, you know, standard of living that I grew up in, where's that going to be in LA? It's like the property, even at that time, was just like so expensive. And I would say that I was just really lonely there in LA. I didn't feel like I was really finding my niche and finding my people there. I would find like a few random people that I really connected with. You were definitely one of those people. I had like maybe two or three other people, but I would say like I would work really hard during the week and I get to the weekend, I realize like I don't really feel like I have you know an offer to do something this weekend, to see someone, to socialize with anyone this weekend. I'm not going to keep searching to find the perfect city because obviously it's not about the perfect city, it's about me. So it's like, well, that means either go back to New York or go to Atlanta. And after that relationship, New York fizzled out. And I just realized, okay, I think I want to be close to family. We've talked about your career and everything in both professions, but how was it like for you growing up as a gay male? Or when did you become aware of that part of yourself? Going forward, how has that shaped who you are as a person? I would say that I knew I was feeling something different from the time I was in my teens. I didn't know what that thing was. I was a slow learner. Some people say that, oh, I knew from the time I was five years old. No, I did not know at five years old. I did not know at 10 years old. I knew there was just something I was feeling different than other kids. I was a different kid in other ways, too, because I was just such a nerd. I was so into doing jigsaw puzzles. They would buy me jigsaw puzzles, and I would do them over and over again. I'd do them and take them apart, do them again. And then when I got bored, I would take them apart and flip them over so the cardboard side would be up. And I'd redo them without seeing any of the pictures was a really big old movie buff. So I was a weird kid, you know, reading all my sci-fi books and all my comic books and stuff. So I just had my own little world and all of my little hobbies and interests. So that idea of wanting to be around a bunch of other boys was just not interesting to me most of the, my childhood. So it took me a long time, even into college. And I was like, oh, I think I like this, <laughs> you know, but I still didn't know what that meant exactly. Because most of my deepest friendships were with girls. So I just thought, well, maybe I'm bisexual or something. It really took me going away to school for me to feel like I had permission to explore that some and have my first little relationships when I was away in college. Even then, I still didn't know if I considered that. So I feel like when I did go away to live in New York, it gave me, you know, this, that opportunity to really connect to that and to really explore and to be okay with it. I don't think I really had shame about it. I originally got to college. I was in the journalism program. Then I switched to the theater program. So I would say most of the guys in that theater program were gay. And I was not out at all to them that whole time I was at school. They just felt so different than who I was because they were very flamboyant, very queenie. And we had a performing arts magnet at my high school. I was around openly gay and flamboyant kids in high school, too. And I just never felt like those were my people. I didn't get it. Even some of my friends who are mostly straight friends took me to the first gay bar I went to, which was in college in Athens, Georgia. So I was just mystified by a lot of, you know, what people call it, the gay culture, the gay world or whatever, and some of the personalities in it for a long time. It really took until, God, I guess it was like my mid-20s. It wasn't until I was working at a restaurant in New York, and a lot of the guys there were gay, but really smart, really funny, and we could have a conversation about whatever. And at that time, we're talking the early 90s. So we would be talking about everything from like what happened with the OJ trial, Anita Hill, and sexual harassment. I mean, there was a lot of hot button issues. It was like, we were like the view 
We'd be waiting tables and then coming back to the waiter station and debating what's going on in the world and the news or whatever. It was a very different way of having gay friends. I was like, God, they're so smart. And they never really asked me or pushed me to talk about my sexuality at all. Most of these guys are white. They were still working in that restaurant, but I wanted to back away from acting and I wanted to pursue getting better with my writing and focusing on that. I had one little piece published in Essence Magazine. So that's when I went to the New York LGBT Center and they had this group and I'd read about the group, but I never had the time in my schedule to go to their meetings. And again, it was like this breakthrough because these were guys who were highly intelligent. Some of them were working on Wall Street. Some were lawyers. Some were in the art world. Like they had all these different careers, but everyone had this idea of writing and studying writing and craft and whatever. And that was the other thing that made me think, oh, these are my people. I immediately felt at home in that group of people. And at the time, a lot of the writing was about what was going on with, you know, AIDS, HIV, being accepted by our families, all these kind of issues. We had, you know, really a lot of great writing and a lot of great conversation. I really felt like that time in New York really gave me that opportunity to come out authentically as myself. Like some people I've met here in Atlanta, they never have really come out mm -hmm. because they just stayed in the South. So they're never really authentically themselves. And then there's some people, they just put on this kind of exterior, I think, just so they can be accepted within that kind of stereotype of a gay community. Okay. Those people I was meeting and befriending there in New York then in the 90s, when I was ready to come out fully, these are people that they didn't treat me any differently. We had the same kind of great conversations that we'd had before. There was no switch that went on or off. It was like we were just ourselves. I think it's great that you had that awareness. Well, myself, I'll say first person. Yeah, that is the challenge. First coming out is the importance of acknowledging that reality of who I am, but how that works with me and other parts of my personality. There's one gay teacher that I'm friendly with him. He says I'm sort of a mentor to him. I don't know what I've been through, but he still struggles with being seen as gay and what that means. I think for him, the idea of going to a gay space is really scary. He doesn't ever want to go to see a drag show. He doesn't want to go to gay clubs or bars or whatever. You know, for me now, it's like, I really love a drag show. I love watching RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul went to my high school, as a matter of fact. So it's like, I love seeing his success and all that and seeing what he creates and all the success he's creating for more gay people. Like, I never really had even had a problem with those guys that were super queeny and funny and campy or whatever. It was just like, I didn't want that to be an expectation that I had to change who I am to fit in. I don't want to change who I am to fit in a black space. And I definitely don't want to have to change who I am to fit into, you know, a gay space. I'm just like, if you don't like the way I look, you know, the way I behave as a black person, I'm like, well, this is what you get. This is a black person, you know, in the same way, this is a gay person. I can know a person, but to hear a person talk about their story, because we know each other, what drew me to you. And I hadn't thought of that because I met you at a time in my life where I was out, but I wasn't really aware or I was uncomfortable still. Like you said, I didn't feel that I belonged in what was expected as far as being a gay man. And especially because you're Black, that I was like, I like the way you present. I like the way that you are upfront about your intelligence, that you don't diminish that part of yourself, that you don't put on an act. And yeah, thank you for that, because that was a good example for me of just saying, oh, I can be myself. I can read books, all those things I love mm -hmm. to do. I can do that right. and I can be gay. I don't have to... Yeah, I don't have to do those things that are expected. And especially as I became more aware how 
being black and gay and the expectations around that particular persona. So yeah, thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. You know, as much as possible, just try to stay authentically who I am and not try to put on a facade for, you know, what I think will make me more popular in a group. Even though sometimes I feel like that would have made, you know, sometimes life easier if I just put on this facade of like, no, this is what they expect. This is what I'm going to give them. Around just being Black, I hadn't asked you about that, but one of the things that I liked about you and that I related to, our backgrounds are different as far as family, Mm -hmm. but similar in that I struggled for many years about like how I present to some may seem inauthentic. So I always like that part of you too. That restaurant was such a, an incredible gathering of super intelligent people working at this little East Village diner. But we talked about sometimes issues with race. And there were sometimes there was like, even though I didn't feel like I was that much older, and I have eclectic interest in music and art and film and whatever. And some of them, especially then in the 90s, a lot of younger Black people started getting this kind of hip hop identity where you're supposed to only like Black things. Back then, you were supposed to be a stand for like all hip hop. Even if it's not part of your background or your upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. We would sometimes have these challenging conversations where someone would say, well, you're not really black if you don't like whoever it was. You know, that was one of the biggest fights we would have at that restaurant was control of the stereo. It became this battle where a lot of us would bring in our favorite CDs or tapes. We wanted to play the music we liked while we were working. And some of these younger black staff members, they would really you expect me to champion the music that they love. But I didn't grow up with hip hop. And the hip hop I did grow up with was very innocent. All that early, early stuff. It was just very innocent compared to what was happening by then in the 90s. It was like, I don't want to listen to any gangster rap. None of it was appealing to me. None of that reflects the way I grew up or my background. So you're telling me that's the authentic Black experience. I'm telling you, I grew up in a Black neighborhood, all Black. There was not one white person on my street. Not one. Your version of being Black is not more authentic than mine. So we had to have a lot of conversations and arguments where you're just going back and forth about, like, what does it mean to be Black? My parents went to an HBCU and that's where they met and fell in love. You know, when I go see my family, all I see is black folks. Is it because I speak a certain way? That's what makes me less authentically black. That's my authentic experience. It doesn't mean I'm less black. So I had a lot of those kind of conversations before I got to meet you. And there was even one white friend I had. I remember we went to some store and I was asking something to this little bodega in these little storefronts in New York. And we came back from the store. And she's like, oh my God, you're like the whitest black man I've ever met. Which I thought was so odd because I was like one of her only black friends. <laughs> you know, how do you have the authority to say that? You don't even know how offensive that is. For me personally, I think it's that thing uh, like with black people and with non-black people. It's like unpacking why this is. Why is my experience less authentic? It's because it's not seen in the media in the same way that these other ones are. And it's not a judgment on those other life experiences. But Mm -hmm. we can't say that's the only Black experience only because that's what's seen in the media. You know, it's something that I definitely, I think about as a teacher. It never happened with any Black kids I taught in LA or New York. But here in Atlanta, a couple of times Black kids have said something or made some allusion like, I was like a fake white man, or I'm trying to be white or something like that. When you've lived a life and you've had these kind of battles and discussions with people challenging about who you are and the authenticity of who you are, is like having an 11 year old do it like 20 years later is like, whatever. You know, when I went to college, I had people shooting buckshot at me and calling me the N-word. You know, so it's like, yeah, I think I'm pretty black. <laughs> you yeah. know? Then I've had the other thing where we may be getting into so much issues of race and color, looking at whatever text we're reading, 
where I've had kids ask, would you be teaching the same things if you had white kids in this class? I'm like, well, yeah, we're reading real literature. This is what is in the literature. It seems like encouraging people to see that, yes, it's black, but it's American history or it's world history, whatever it is. Why do we pigeonhole it in such a way that we forget it's part of the global human experience? I want to create a space for them to make their own awakening, their own understanding. Sounds like giving them space to find their answers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And if I feel like they're kind of going off, I may just ask a follow-up question about that, you know, or ask them to think about some other little details. Are you sure about that? Because what about this? Now I'm at a school that is very mixed. It has a mix of Latino and white and black, Asian. It's very economically diverse as well. I would say, even though I've been at diverse populations in California and in New York, this is by far the most diverse because of the economic range as well as the ethnic backgrounds. Just an enormous amount of diversity there. Like their kids we have, they, they look like they're just black, but their background is actually either East or West African. Yeah, I'm teaching world literature this year. Our first unit is on African literature. Mm -hmm. Not African-American, but African literature. So it's like you can easily make an overstatement or oversimplification of something about, you know, culture or, or uh, societies in Africa. And it's like, I've never been to Africa. You know, I'm still growing and learning about a lot of things. So I have to make sure that I always stand on what do we know for sure? You know, one of my students, he was, oh, he was checking me. <laughs> we were doing our second unit on Asia. I think he's Japanese, but he's studying Chinese at the same time. But we were reading some stories and we, this first uh, folktale we read, which I've taught for several years, is one folktale. And he's like, I don't think that's an actual folktale. It's called Tokoyo and the Sea Monster. And it's kind of a great story because it shows a girl who's a pearl diver, uh -huh. the one who's able to be the savior of this seaside village that's being terrorized by a monster. And he's like, I don't think that's a Japanese story. He's like, I'm going to ask my relatives because I don't think that any of them know that story. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean that it didn't exist in your region or whatever. Just maybe nobody told you. Right. Or they may have gone in and out of fashion or whatever. But after he had kind of checked me on this, like, God, I never even thought about that. And I started Googling and, and I found basically what he found too was that they cannot find a native origin of that story. That the first person who wrote it was a Westerner. Mm. Japan and China, they have history going back a few thousand years. Printing started in China. You know, modern printing started in China. So they have printed materials going back centuries. And this thing was written, you know, the first writing we have of it is like the 19th century. And they cannot find anything previously about it. So I'm like, he checked me on that. And he's right, I think. <laughs> you know, so that's something I had to then use as a preface to my other class. Like, it is said that this is an old story. We're not sure if this is an old story. But, you know, that thing of like, you say what you know, you leave a space for what you don't know. Because he said, I'm going to talk to my relatives overseas, not to his relatives here in Georgia. <laughs> so it's like, I don't have any resources like that. It's like, go ahead, do it. Let us know what they find out, you know? It's great to hear that someone in your position is open to that and that, yeah, you are the educator. You are the one who is giving these students the knowledge, but to be open to finding out what you need to learn too. So it's really great to hear that. Yeah. Well, my time in LA schools, that gave me an early education in like, you have to let the students teach you to be effective in my mind. When I started teaching in South Central and I realized that even though I had my middle school experience that I had all this love and affection for what I had experienced in middle school, it's like, this school is not that school. They're talking about life and death struggles 
And so I had to realize, I don't know what that experience is like. And I'm going to have to, without letting our class time be dominated by a discussion of that, I've got to recognize that their experience is different than mine. And one kid in particular, by that time, I think I've been teaching maybe three, four months. And so I kind of had that point, had gotten down the structure of how to start a class and how to organize a class. And so I was going to do my little, what we call our mini lesson or our opening, whereas when I'm going to give them some basic knowledge about some stuff, maybe some little practice about some vocabulary before we get into our reading. And I feel like, oh, I really got them. I have an overhead projector shining on the front board and I'm showing them this thing and I'm talking all about this stuff and just talking. And I finish and this one black kid raises his hand and he's like, mister, what language are you speaking? Because I don't know what you're talking about. So the kids have all been so quiet <laughs> and what I thought listening to this whole spiel is I'm like feeling so good. Like I finally know how to start a class. I finally know what I'm doing. I'm going to share this stuff and I have my whole lesson all organized. They didn't understand anything I was saying. And he was the one that finally, you know, had the nerve to just tell me mm -hmm. that my language was just too sophisticated for them. I see. But okay. I had to realize what we call the language register. Mm -hmm. The same way, like if you go to court, you're speaking in a certain way as you're in the court, which is different than the way you speak when you're with your friends or whatever. But you kind of got to read the room. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not use all those four-letter words that are in your vocabulary. Maybe your sentences aren't strung out with so many long phrases. Maybe you're going to stop a bit and ask a question in the middle of a statement to make sure they're understanding. You know, don't go on a five or 10-minute diatribe and think they caught every word. I remember writing about that in one of my papers for grad school. It's like, oh, well, I really have to learn to understand them better, to know what they need. I mean, I find because of what's happened with COVID, even those accelerated kids, I can't talk too long without asking them thought-provoking questions because they're not used to dialoguing because they've been just in the bedroom doing little assignments. They haven't been talking to their peers and they haven't been having academic conversations for like a year and a half. It's definitely food for thought for me and how I interact with people, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really want to thank you for today. This is really great. And we haven't seen each other in a while in person, but I learned a lot today. So thank you so much. I'm not sure how it works with teachers, but are you reachable on social media? Is that something you do? I'm starting to think about some things, but I don't have anything right this moment. So no, <laughs> not, not so much now. In the future, I'm going to be thinking about some things that I you know, have some projects, some ideas, maybe stealing some things out of your playbook here. Oh, <laughs> do you have any last minute comments or anything? You know, anybody who's out there that is a parent or knows kids that are in K-12, the struggles that they're going through are unlike anything that any of us in our lives went through, that they're dealing with all the thoughts and the feelings and insecurities that we had when we were younger. But this is a whole new ball of wax. There's a lot of evidence that's coming out now that even if you have COVID that has been a weaker version of COVID, they are finding there are some brain-based effects that they're finding out about where it may be affecting cognition, it may be affecting anxiety and depression. So just keep in mind those kids and those young adults in your life, support them, talk to them in whatever way you're able to. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. 